Father, your word tells us, your son tells us in your word that, that, Father, you are seeking true worshipers, those who will worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we, we ask that you would uh, make us those kinds of worshipers of yours, um, at least myself, singing your praises this morning. I just sense the, the slowness of my heart to, to lift up your name, Lord, the, the selfishness, the the self-seekingness that, that hinders the, the praises that should be lifted up to you from my mouth. Lord, I pray that you would make us all more and more uh, true worshipers of yours, that we would be zealous for your glory, that we would desire daily to lift up the name of Jesus and um, to become those who worship you from a, a heart that is fully devoted to you. And Lord, may you use your word in our hearts this morning to, to make us what you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you take your Bibles and open back up to the book of Ruth, we're continuing to work through chapter 1. Last time we looked at the first six verses. Today we're looking at verses 7 through 19. And I titled this message, Loving Past the Point of No Return. That expression, the point of no return, that is an expression that originated from the world of aviation. Apparently it was first used during World War II. And that phrase, the point of no return, meant the point at which an aircraft has used too much fuel to be able to go back to where it started out from. And when you reach that point, you're fully committed to going all the way to where you initially set out to go. And the use of this phrase is no longer limited to the world of aviation because it is such an apt way to describe a whole range of situations that we can find ourselves in. There's various situations in which there's a point of no return, that if you keep going, there's no going back. And the passage that we're looking at today is one such situation. As believers in Christ, we are called to show loving kindness to God and to others. And oftentimes, Showing loving kindness will require us to go past the point of no return, to so commit ourselves to God, to so commit ourselves to others that our lives will never be the same. And we've, we've begun to study this true story of a woman named Naomi. And so far, we have seen this woman lose basically everything. We saw how famine had resulted in her leaving her homeland with her husband and her two sons for the land of Moab. And we saw that while they were in the land of Moab, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. Then Naomi's two sons would go on to marry two Moabite women, but then her sons would die ten years later, leaving behind no grandchildren. And last week's passage ended with us seeing Naomi stripped of all her family and preparing to head back to Bethlehem 
because she had heard that the Lord had visited her people with bread. In our passage this morning, we're going to see the spotlight that was fixed squarely on Naomi. We're going to see the spotlight broaden out to include both of her daughters-in-law because they are locked in this tragic struggle with her. And we're going to see these two young women come face to face with their own points of no return. And they're going to have to decide whether or not they're going to keep showing loving kindness to Naomi or turn back to safety. And their example that we will look at this morning will cause you and me to consider our own points of no return in our walks with the Lord. So, as I said, we're looking at verses 7 through 19 of chapter 1 today. And it's a long passage, so I'm not going to read through the whole thing. We're just going to start working through it verse by verse. First, in verses 7 to 9, we're going to see the concern of loving kindness. You know, loving kindness always has an object. It's your concern for someone else. That is the concern of loving kindness. It's focused on the good of the other. That's what we're going to see in verses 7 through 9. So let's start with verse 7. So she, speaking of Naomi, she departed from the place where she was, and where were they? They were in Moab, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Again, Naomi has heard that God has ended the famine, that he's brought bread back to the house of bread, Bethlehem, and so she's headed back. Having been completely emptied in Moab, she's going to head back to Moab, and her daughters-in-law are coming with her. And we're going to see that these two daughters-in-law have names. We haven't encountered their names yet, but their names are Orpah and Ruth, and they're journeying with her. They are all three of them on the road heading back to Judah. And we saw last week that at this point, Naomi's husband has died, her two sons have died, so there is no one left of her original nuclear family. And due to the structure of society back then, this means that Naomi has no security now. She apparently has no parents left to go back to, she has no husband, and she has no sons to protect her or to provide for her or to produce progeny to continue the family name. To Naomi's mind, her future is without hope because her family has been all but wiped out. Her husband's name is going to die with her. She's without hope. And apparently at some point during this journey back, Naomi considers her situation and she begins to seriously think about what she may be getting her daughters-in-law into by allowing them to return with her. She begins to think to, to herself, do I really want these two girls trapped in this hopeless situation with me? And we're going to find out, no, she doesn't. Verse 8, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. What is not an option for Naomi is still an option for Orpah and Ruth. Naomi is too old to have any parents to go back to, but her daughters-in-law still have a mother's home that they can find refuge in. 
And I want you to note here in this verse the loving concern that Naomi has for these two women. Naomi is willing to be left utterly alone if it means that these girls that she loves can have a second chance at life. And so she urges them to go back. But she also prays for them. She prays a blessing upon them. Verse 8 again. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you. And that word for kindly is chesed. It means loving kindness. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Naomi calls on the Lord. She calls on Yahweh to show loving kindness to Orpah and Ruth. She asks him to show them the same loving kindness that they have shown to her dead sons and to her. And as I said, this word, loving kindness, is the word chesed. And it is one of those Hebrew words that is very difficult to translate into the English language. Listen to what uh, the commentator Daniel Block said about this word. He said, chesed, that's loving kindness, cannot be translated with one English word. It is a covenant term wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, it refers to acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. That's what Daniel Block says about this this word. From Naomi's statement here in in verse 8, it is apparent that these two women had been faithful and loving wives and daughters-in-law. She says, may the Lord show you loving kindness as you have shown to the dead and to me. When the husbands of Orpah and Ruth died, it would seem that they had no more legal obligation to Naomi. Their husbands were their tie to Naomi. And rather than abandon her, they were still there with her. They persisted in staying with her. Their love for their mother-in-law, who was no longer their mother-in-law because their husbands had died, their love for her went beyond what was legally required. They had indeed showed her loving kindness. And Naomi prays that the Lord would treat them the same way that they have treated her. In verse 9, she offers a final prayer for them, that God would grant them to find rest. She says, May the Lord grant that you may find rest. And what does rest consist of? In the mind of Naomi, in that ancient Near East world where so much depended upon a woman having a man in her life to provide and to, to, to give security, what is rest to the mind of Naomi? Naomi. She says, may the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. In that ancient Near East world, there would be no rest for a childless widow. So Naomi asks God to provide these women with husbands. And then she kisses them goodbye. And it's significant how these women respond to this potential parting with Naomi. They 
lift up their voices and weep. What does that tell you about Naomi and their relationship with her? It tells you that they loved her very much. And it also tells you that Naomi had been a loving mother-in-law to these women. These women weren't making jokes about the cliche idea of a mother-in-law being unpleasant to live with. No, Naomi, whose name means pleasant, was pleasant for them to live with. They loved her very much. They loved her. And not only have Orpah, well, let me back up. It's, it's because of Naomi's love for these women that makes it so hard for them to depart from her. It's that very love that Naomi has for them that moves her to urge them to go back. She doesn't want them dragged into this situation with her. So we see here that not only is Ruth and Orpah showing loving kindness to Naomi, but Naomi is showing loving kindness to them by urging them to go back home. Later in verses 11 and thir- through 13, Naomi will address Orpah and Ruth as her daughters, not merely her daughters-in-law. She considers them now her daughters. Over that course of 10 years, their hearts have been knit together. And Naomi demonstrates her own loving kindness to them and that she is willing to inflict more loss upon herself, the loss of her two daughters, so that they may be spared what she has to endure. So you see the concern of loving kindness. Orpah and Ruth being concerned about Naomi, Naomi being concerned about her two daughters. So that's the concern of loving kindness. In verses 10 through 15, we encounter the cost of loving kindness. There's a cost that comes with being committed to someone to that degree. We'll see this in verses 10 through 15. Look at verse 10. Look at how they respond to this urging from Naomi to go back home. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. So we see here that in response to Naomi's urging to leave, both Orpah and Ruth initially resist what she has to say. They say, no, we're going with you. We're going with you. They desire to continue to show loving kindness to Naomi. But Naomi doesn't accept what they have to say. Naomi does not think that Orpah and Ruth have thought through what they would be committing themselves to in following her back. Loving kindness to someone costs you something. And Naomi doesn't think they are understanding the cost of continuing to show loving kindness to her. Loving kindness costs you something. Loving kindness is not a shallow love, the obligations of which can be fulfilled by writing a sympathy card. Loving kindness is the kind of love that so commits you to someone else that you will walk with them no matter what difficulties that is going to involve you in. Naomi does not want these two women to have to pay that cost. She doesn't want these two women to have to go through what she's going through. And so to spare them, she tries to get them to consider the cost, to count the cost. She tries to get them to think about the hopelessness that they will be consigning themselves to if they go with her. 
So she proceeds to help them understand the cost. And Naomi thinks that the cost is so high that once she lays it out for these two girls, they will turn back. Verse 11, here she goes. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? She says, why are you going to go with me? What a silly thing you're desiring to do. You don't understand. Don't you remember, I have no sons in my womb who will grow to become your husbands. She's reminding them of the situation that they are in. And implied in Naomi's reasoning here is the fact that the key to Orpah and Ruth's futures is the gaining of a husband. Life was very difficult for a woman on her own at that time. As I've said, that was the structure of society in the ancient world. To go with Naomi would be to deny themselves the kind of future that was readily available to them back with their own people. Naomi continues with this reasoning in verses 12 through 13. She says, Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, I should, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? So again, Naomi's repeating her urging to them to return home. She reiterates her hopeless situation by saying that she's too old to get married and have kids. Obviously, she's not too old to get married, but in her mind, marriage is connected with having children. And she says, I'm too old to do that, to get married and to have kids. And even if that wasn't the case, even if she did have hope, And what does she equate hope to? In verse 12, she said, If I said I have hope, that is, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons. That's the hope that she is talking about. She says, even if it was the case that that I had that hope to have a family, to have sons, to continue on my name and to provide security for you, Would these two women really be willing to wait decades for those sons to grow up? Would they really be willing to not marry for that long, to be without security for that long? She continues in verse 13, No, my daughters. She thinks they're not willing to wait that long. No, my daughters. For it is harder for me, or it is more bitter for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Naomi assumes that having considered the cost, these two women are going to be unwilling to pay such a price just to stay with their mother-in-law. Naomi's situation is far more bitter than their situation has to be. Naomi cannot remarry and have kids. But Orpah and Ruth still can. They still can remarry. They still can have children. And then Naomi sums up her situation by saying that the hand of Yahweh has gone against her. You see here that Naomi knows that God is sovereign 
over her situation. Just because she moved to Moab, she understands that she has not gone outside God's jurisdiction. She knows that all that has happened to her is still under God's control. She knows that God has ordained this lot in life for her. And she seems to assume that things will not get better. And we'll see as the book goes on, she's very wrong about that. God is at work for her good, but she can't see that yet. And you need to, th- to remember what Naomi has experienced. She's experienced the famine in Bethlehem that drove her and her family out of the land into Moab. She has experienced the death of her husband. She has experienced the death of her two sons. And the conclusion that she draws from all of this devastation that she's experienced is that the Lord's hand has gone out against her. She likely feels that she is under the judgment of God. And so she says to these two women, don't you see what happens to those who are connected to me? Don't you see what path the Lord has set me on? Why would you put yourselves on this same path when you can have a better life somewhere else? So Naomi has laid it out. She has stated the cost very clearly to these two women. And this is the moment of truth for Orpah and Ruth. Right here, right now, in verses 13 and 14, this is the point of no return. They have to decide, am I going to continue with Naomi and burn all bridges behind me, or am I going to go back where it's safe? The choice has been plainly set before them. And it's interesting how the Lord, in his providence, worked this out. In God's providence, the choice that is before these two women is all the more clear by the fact that they are on the road heading back to Judah right now. They, all three of them have set out for Judah, and they have reached the point of no return. They have reached the point where it's either turn back now or never go back again. It's not them sitting at home in Moab with Naomi standing in the door saying, girls, I got to go stay here. No, they have already committed to the journey and they are on their way back and now comes the point of no return where they have to decide, will I continue with Naomi or will I not? And that brings us to verse 14. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Again, Orpah and Ruth are grieved to hear what Naomi has said. But Naomi's message has hit home for Orpah. Instead of clinging to Naomi, she gives her mother-in-law a farewell kiss, and she heads back. What about Ruth? Well, we see here she is clinging to Naomi. So Naomi decides to give her one last push away. Verse 15, then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. This is the third time that Naomi has tried to get Ruth to go home. The first time was in verses 8 and 9, when she said, go back to your mother's house. May the Lord bless you. The second time was in verses 11 through 13, where she laid out, in no uncertain terms, the costs of 
following her. Now, this third time, she points to the example of Orpah. Orpah has gone back to her people and to her gods. That statement, and to her gods, it it shows that this choice of whether or not to follow Naomi not only involves which people these two ladies will identify with, but it involves which god they will identify with. For Orpah, the cost of identifying with Naomi and identifying with her people and identifying with her god is too great. So she goes back home. And here in verse 15, it's like Naomi is saying to Ruth, look, Orpah gets it. Orpah understands what's at stake, how hard it will be to stay with me. Go home, Ruth. Go back with Orpah. And we're left wondering, what will Ruth do? What will she do? And it's here that we see the commitment of loving kindness. The commitment of loving kindness in verses 16 through the beginning of 19. uh, Verse 16, but Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. That last phrase could also be translated this way. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if even death parts you and me. Because she says, where you die, I'm going to die. And there I'm going to be buried. She's saying, I'm with you all the way. Nothing's going to separate me from you. In these two verses, Ruth tells Naomi to stop. Stop urging me to go back because I have determined to continue showing loving kindness to you. Ruth says that she's going to go where Naomi goes. She's going to stay where Naomi stays. She will identify herself with Naomi's people, the Israelites, and she will identify herself with Naomi's God, Yahweh. She is going to stick with Naomi to the grave. And then to seal her commitment, she takes an oath where she calls on Naomi's God, the one true God, Yahweh, to bear witness to this oath that she has made. So you see here, Yahweh is now Ruth's God. And Ruth understands herself to be accountable to this God for this commitment, not to any other God. She's not going to answer to Chemosh, the God of Moab. She's answering to Yahweh, the one true God. And she prays that the Lord would severely punish her if she allows anything to separate her from Naomi. You see what Ruth is doing. She's burning all her bridges to her former life. She has abandoned her country. She has abandoned her biological family. And she has abandoned the false religion of Moab for the sake of this woman, Naomi. Orpah made her choice. And Ruth made hers. The cost of continuing to show loving kindness to Naomi was too great for Orpah. But the cost was not too great for Ruth. Ruth was willing to pay the price. Ruth irreversibly committed herself to Naomi, and she burned all bridges that she had to another life. 
And you have to imagine that this shocked Naomi. All the reasons that she gave to her daughters-in-law to leave, she thought for sure this is going to send them back home and spare them. But then Ruth comes and, and commits herself to, with a, a totality that she sealed with an oath to God that God would punish her if she doesn't follow through. You can imagine Naomi just standing with her, her mouth agape at her daughter-in-law. Verse 18, when she, Naomi, saw that she, Ruth, was determined to go with her, she said no more. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. None of Naomi's arguments were able to shake Ruth's commitment to her. Naomi knew there was nothing else she could say to change Ruth's mind. So she said nothing, and they continued all the way back to Bethlehem. Now this, this brings us to think about our own situation. Did you know that each one of us in this room faces a similar crossroads to what Orpah and Ruth faced? The stakes were high for these two women, but the stakes are higher for us with this crossroads that I'm talking about. I want you to turn with me back to, or over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Luke 9, and we're looking at verses 57 to 62. Luke 9, 57 to 62. As they, that's Jesus and his disciples, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds just like Ruth and Orpah after that first attempt from Naomi to get them to go back. They said, no, we're going with you. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus discerns that this man doesn't understand the cost that will be involved in following him. He says, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, if you follow me, you will not have a home in this world. The birds and the foxes are going to have more possessions in this world than you are if you follow me. And he said, to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. That first man who desired to follow Jesus, saying, I'll go with you wherever you go, that man's situation is most similar to what we have seen with Ruth and Orpah and Naomi. And 
Luke doesn't tell us which way this man chose. When he heard the cost, how did he choose? Was he like Orpah, considering the cost of being faithful to Jesus as too high? Or was he like Ruth, considering the cost of being faithful to Jesus as worth paying for? Did he walk back down the road to his house like Orpah did, or did he cling to Jesus like Ruth clung to Naomi? Did this man go back to his false religion of living for himself like Orpah did, or more like Ruth, did he say to Jesus, I don't care what it costs me. I don't care that I won't have anywhere to lay my head. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And that's the choice that faces each one of us. Jesus calls each one of us to burn every bridge, to throw away every hope this world has to offer us, and to throw our lot with with him, to place every egg we have in the basket of Jesus Christ alone. And the reason I said that the stakes are higher for us in this choice than they were for Ruth and Orpah in their choice is because of who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of you and of me. And this God became a man and he lived a life of flawless commitment to God the Father. He showed perfect chesed to God the Father. And then he went to the cross where he died to pay for all the sins of all who would totally commit themselves to him by faith alone. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he is who he says he is and that he can do what he claimed he could do, which was to save forever all who would repent of their sins and trust in him alone for salvation, forgiving them of their sins and giving them eternal life. And Jesus stands and he calls each one of us, every single person in this room, he is calling to follow him. He is calling you to commit yourself to him just as fully as Ruth committed herself to Naomi. In fact, to commit yourself to him more fully than even Ruth committed herself to Naomi. And the question for each one of us is, are we willing to go wherever Jesus goes, wherever he wants us to go? Are we willing to do whatever he wants us to do? Are we willing to identify ourselves with his people, the church, even though they're every bit as flawed as we are? Are we willing to make Christ God our God? Are we willing to accept that Jesus is God and we accept him as our God? Are we willing to surrender to him as our Lord? Are we willing to die where he died? Ruth said to Naomi, where you die, I'm going to die. Can we say that to Jesus? Where did Jesus die? He died on a cross. Look at what Jesus said earlier in this same chapter of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Are we willing to die where Jesus died? That is, are we willing to take up our cross daily and follow him? Taking up your cross daily means dying to all the hopes and the dreams that this world offers you and fixing your hope completely on Jesus alone, knowing that he alone can satisfy you. Most people, when they truly understand what is at stake with following Jesus or not following him, most people decide to turn back. Very few understand the infinite value of knowing Jesus. Very few decide to follow him all the way to the cross. And Jesus, if you go back with me or over with me to John chapter 6, go to John chapter 6. Jesus placed this very decision before a whole crowd of his disciples. And they all chose to turn back, except for a very few number. In John 6, verses 26, all the way through verse 65, Jesus is basically telling this crowd, listen, I am the bread of life. I am the only one who can satisfy you forever. Therefore, put every last ounce of faith and hope you have in me. And the people said, this is a very hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then look at verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They went back to their gods and they said, the cost is too high. I can't go where you're going. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, all that's left standing there, is these 12 guys. He said, you don't want to go away also, do you? Considering the cost, you might think they, they would want to hike it out of there as well. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Only 12 out of a crowd of thousands considered the cost of following Jesus worth paying. Unlike Naomi, who held out no hope to Ruth, she said, if you follow me, there's no hope for you. Unlike Naomi, Jesus offers us an undying and certain hope if we follow him. When when Jesus says, follow me or go back, He's not saying you have no hope. He's saying your only hope is with me, and if you follow me, you will never lose this hope. The last passage I'll have you turn to is 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. 
Peter writes, Peter, one of the ones who remained, he was the very one who said, you're my only hope. Where else am I going to go? I'm going with you. He says here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let me pause there. This call of absolute commitment from Jesus is not him saying, you got to try as hard as you can to earn my favor. No, we can't save ourselves by our efforts. This call from Jesus is, you need to see that I'm your only answer. I'm your only hope. I alone have done what is necessary to save you. Abandon every other hope you have to earn your salvation or to find salvation in this world. Put it all on me. And we do that by faith, trusting in him. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, let me hit pause. Whose loving kindness was found to be genuine or of the best quality? Was it Ruth's or Orpah's? It was Ruth's because it withstood the strain of the cost that she was going to pay. Our faith in Christ is found to be genuine when we go through every kind of trial we can go through in this life, and we still believe that Jesus is more than worth paying that cost for. If I say, oh man, I've hit a point to where I can't follow, my faith isn't real. It's a false faith. Verse 8, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Listen, if Ruth considered Naomi worth giving up everything for, Naomi could, who could offer her no hope, how much more should you and I consider Jesus worth giving up everything for? Let's pray. Father, we listen to the the hard words of Jesus when he says, you know, if you don't love me more than than anyone, you're not worthy of me. And, And Lord, we sense our own weakness. We sense our own sinfulness, Lord. We sometimes when we hear that call, we we say, yes, I want to follow you. But we wonder, have I got what it takes? And the answer is no. But Jesus does. And he is the one who sustains us in our walk with him. The question before us, is he worth giving it all up for? Do we want to follow him? Do we see that he alone is our salvation, that he alone can satisfy us forever? If so, all we need to do is turn from sin and put our trust in you and say, Lord, save me. Be my all in all. And then you, you will enable us to follow you wherever you go. You will enable us to pick up our cross and die where you die and You will raise us from the dead. 
Lord, all those who come to you, you will not fail to raise up and bring to be with you forever. Lord, we are, we are dependent on your grace to answer the call and to commit ourselves to you. Lord, we burn every bridge knowing that only Jesus is worth giving up everything for. And Lord, any who is, are here who do not yet consider Jesus to be worth giving up everything for, may you open their eyes to the emptiness of this world and to the ugliness of their sin and to the beauty and the value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, we pray in his name. Amen.